Welcome to Canine Hijinks, the podcast for those who want to explore more ways to have fun with their dogs and perhaps discover the wider world of training and dog sports. It may even convert the casual pet owner into a dog sport enthusiast. Join me, Alyssa Looney. And me, Whitney Taylor, as we share our dog training journeys, as well as resources you can use to enhance your life with your canine friends. Welcome to another episode of Canine Hijinks. We are here today with a very exciting guest, Hannah Brannigan of Wonder Pups Training and the nerdiest of nerdy dog training podcasts, Drinking from the Toilet. That's right. Hannah is a longtime training instructor with an impressive resume. Her podcast, Drinking from the Toilet, is a must-listen weekly podcast. She is also an author and a faculty member with the Karen Pryor Academy, Clicker Expo, and Denise Fenzi Sports Academy, and teaches through her own online training programs through her website, hannahbranigan.com. Hannah is involved in multiple dog sports with her own dogs, including obedience, agility, confirmation, IPO, and Rally. Hannah, welcome to Canine Hijinks. Thanks for having me. Hannah, we're so glad you're here, and we're really excited to learn more about the topic of the day, which is obedience. But before we do that, we'd like to spend a moment sharing about the fun we've had with our dogs lately. So will you get us started by introducing us to the dogs in your household and what kind of fun you've been up to with them lately? Um, Sure. Uh, Let's see. Right now, the breathing organisms in my house include um, <laughs> Spark, who is a uh, Belgian Shavir, and she's 13. Um, and then I also have uh, Rugby, who is a Border Terrier. And I want to say he is six, seven now. Oh, gosh, math is hard. I'm not, time is a construct, so it doesn't really matter. And then I have Figment, um, who is my youngest. And right now I have this like little foster hound, which you can see in the background, yeah. who <laughs> randomly showed up. Uh, at my house, and I, for a while, was trying to find her, find her original home because she seemed like she must have must have come from somewhere, or maybe that was just hopeful, wishful thinking. Um, and now we have accepted the fact that they are not coming forward, and so we're looking for a forever home for her. Ah, uh, she's laying so nicely, though. She's not just going to stay. She is not. I do not know. <laughs> she is available. She's available for adoption. <laughs> All right. Good to know. Get in touch with Hannah if you're looking for a hound. Whitney, what have you been up to? I have been trialing and Sprite and I had a very exciting development last weekend. Sprite got the last two cues that she needed to become qualified for the European Open team tryout. So I'm super, super, super excited for that. I spent like three years trying to get Fractal qualified and it just kept not happening. And then it finally happened. And then there was COVID. So I'm very excited about this and started making travel plans for test flights and all kinds of stuff. So it was really a big, a big step for us. And so we'll, we'll be out there gaining experience with no real goals other than to go do a thing. That's awesome. Uh, I have been playing with Lincoln and Jet learning about barn hunt. So there's a club that's 10 minutes from my house. It's not something I've ever done, but they have been absolutely loving it, particularly Lincoln. He kind of loses his mind a little bit, which if those who know Lincoln from agility was not necessarily a lose his mind (laughs) kind of activity. It was a thanks for the food, mom. This is fun. But um, barn hunt makes him really happy. So they're signed up for a trial in a couple of weeks and that's been a lot of fun. And with Ole, of course, we're just sticking mostly to agility. So 
she's learning and we have a big competition in a couple weeks. So that's going to be a lot of fun. I need to come out and see Lincoln do barn hunt because I want to see excited Lincoln. Oh, it's so fun. (laughs) So fun. So fun. So let's dive into the topic of the day, obedience. So Hannah, you are certainly well qualified to talk about obedience and we want to unpack the sport a little bit more. Can you start by giving us an overview of what obedience is and what it entails? I can try. That's kind of a big question. And I I answer it differently every time. I think um, one of the things that is probably most important is to think about is that as a, as a sport, it was originally developed to show off what were considered to be like good life skills to show off that your Mm -hmm. dog had the skills needed to be a good companion, a good pet, and do some of the, you know, kinds of everyday tasks that were, I guess, considered normal in, I mean, this was almost hundred years ago at this point, at least in the U S and of course, lots of other sports have an obedience element, which overlaps a lot. So like the protection sports have an obedience element Mm -hmm. and the field sports hunting, um, gun dog stuff has a lot of the same kind of thing. And so there's a fair amount of, of overlap there. And of course, over, you know, over the decades, like most sports, it's become, um, it's own, it's taken on a life of its own. It's become, you know, really very stylized mm-hmm. and, um, and, and, you know, a little fancier, um, I think in some ways kind of, kind of cooler, um, as we're <laughs> teaching the dogs to, to do cool things. Um, it's still, there's still that element of like the roots of each exercise come from some practical application. So if you look at the, the principles, the core concepts within, within each of the exercises, you'll see, oh yeah, that's, um, you know, I've seen police dogs do something similar like that when they're working. I've seen search and rescue dogs doing that. I've seen, um, well, you know, um, you know, hunting dogs doing this or that. That's something that I always like kind of come back to, but it's also the way that, the way that it's designed, your the goal is to complete each of those exercises so that the the principal purpose of that exercise is you know is accomplished. But then also, style matters too. So there are um, elements of precision. How you do it um, matters, and and all of that is reflected in in the score. Um, the closest analog that I've kind of come up with is similar to um, dressage in the horse world. Where, uh-huh. yeah, you're you're taking a an animal and you're putting them through a whoops a training process to really optimize the the abilities that they have that they come with and kind of move them towards uh, towards a standard, uh, which which I think is kind of cool because as a as a training nerd I'm fascinated by the plasticity of behavior and obedience is really very accessible to at some, to some degree, at some level to almost every dog, regardless of breed or size or age, there are things that we can do that we, that we can apply, that we can move those dogs and, and, and teach them things. And I feel like every, every iteration that I go through, there'll be something like, oh, well, you know, I really can't change how a dog sits, you know, a nine-year-old dog, like they've been sitting this way for nine years. So maybe we should just not worry about it. And then a dog will come along and make a liar out of me and say, actually, I can completely learn how to do this really nice tucked sit from scratch at nine years old. Mm-hmm. And that's what well, we couldn't do that with a 12 year old dog. And then I'll have a 12 year old dog. come <laughs> through and, and we do that. So I think there is a misconception that to do competitive obedience and you have to be, you know, very much a perfectionist and it has to be like super precise and uptight and like no smiling and like lots of control issues and stuff. And that's, I, I don't find that to be true. I mean, I think you can do obedience, but I also think there's plenty of people in other sports that are exactly like that. <laughs> Um, that's true. (laughs) We all work out our childhood trauma in our own way. So it just kind of depends on what, you know, 
what tools you find, but I consider obedience to be a, a sport of stimulus control more than precision mm-hmm. um, because it's really very much about working together, responding to cues um, in, in a way that's, that's very functional first and foremost. And then again, you know, the style matters and, and the precision is there, but it really, it's very secondary. I love that you mentioned stimulus control because we just published an episode about stimulus control um, with Rachel Downs. And I have been learning more about that topic because one of the things I've done with my youngest dog, I think in some instances, is built in frustration to some of our behaviors. So I started having more fun with her teaching her to heal than I have Mm -hmm. past dogs. Same with my um, older Border Collie. And um, I really have built in some frustration to her behavior of coming to my side kind of from wherever she is. And so she does this little frustrated squeal thing. Yep, that's a that very, sure. common, <laughs> very common phenomenon, yes. And recently I was like, oh yeah, that's totally frustration that I built into that behavior on accident. Mm-hmm. Oops. Yeah. Yep. I mean, that's a really, really com- that exact spot. That's one of my, you know, probably top 10 troubleshooting requests that I get when I do a workshop um, or a seminar. It's, it's so easy and it's, you know, a similar pattern to things we see similar behaviors and similar behaviors in terms of what the learning process looks like, um, where we can get a little frustration bark or squeak um, accidentally built in where you have this long complex it's a, it's a, the skill itself is a complex skill. It's a compound skill that involves a lot of body movements to make it happen. And then the, the training process has a lot of moving parts to it where it's, they're easy to accidentally lump or miss a reinforcement or be a little bit late. And then if we add to it, the element of vague criteria, and that sounds kind of critical, but let me mm-hmm. get to it. Um, with heel position, because it's defined by the, the position of the dog relative to the handler. So you want their I like, uh, I love the, the mnemonic, uh, toes to bows. So I look for the dog's feet to be lined up with the laces on my shoes, uh, right. With the bone of my ankle, because that's pretty specific. And then very specific, very specific, which, which (laughs) is how we get, can avoid some of the the squeaks by accident. Um, and, uh, and then close enough to you that they are, I really think of it as close as possible without actually touching or impeding your movement, but that we often get stuck in a place of as we're training it, is that close enough to meet my criteria? And so there's this little delay, like it can be a split second gap in deciding, oh, are they close enough? I should reward or not. And that in and of itself is, is pretty frustrating. And so we'll see that in a lot of places we'd see, um, we see squeaks show up in you know, other sports, other behaviors where there's that, that very error prone process where there's something about the behavior um, introduces a, a, cer- a little bit of uncertainty in whether or not we should reward. And that results in a little bit of inconsistency. And that's more than enough to get you know, frustration and get extinction to show up. And then for a dog that externalizes that with vocalization, we get a bark. So that's like every German shepherd that I have worked with. Um, <laughs> so can you back up and talk about the like elements that are present in obedience in terms of general behaviors? Yeah. So and again, it, it, they're all coming from like they're, they're stylized versions of stuff that you might do in real life. So healing is a huge component that's present at every level of obedience. And healing is a fancy version of what we might have for walking on leash or moving your dog through space. Um, in the first level in novice, there are, there are three levels, novice, open, and utility. In the first level, you do a healing pattern that's 
on leash and then one that's off leash. And so your dog is moving with you, following your direction and speed. And it, that's, of course, you know, something that we want if you're walking through your neighborhood, if you're um, taking your dog for a hike you or taking them to do and to do a job, um, you know, working law enforcement, working on, uh, you know, search and rescue, anything like that. The difference there is taking, turning that into a sport. We really want to see it as seamless as possible, which is where, you know, I think the parallels with dressage start to become really obvious. Um, the, the most beautiful healing teams, in, in my opinion, uh, are the ones where there's this sense of seamlessness. Um, you have the, the cues from the, the human are almost imperceptible. They're almost invisible. And so it seems like the dog is attached. And so everywhere the human goes, they change direction, change speed, the dog is right there with them. And there's really no gap. There's no latency, no delay in the change. Now, of course, functionally to be out and about in the real world, you don't always need that degree of, of tightness, you know, of position there, but it's really cool when you do have it. So <laughs> I kind of love that. Um, so that's a, you know, a big, a big part of it moving with moving with the handler. I think that's really what a lot of people think of when they, when they hear the word obedience. And then there's also some of the other tasks. There's, um, usually some amount of position change. Um, so sit down and stand. Um, in novice, we have also a stand for exam, which is where you stand your dog and then the judge comes up and, and briefly touches them, which again, you can kind of see that's a more stylized version of you know, basic stand or sit for being petted or for, for grooming or for handling or you know, that stuff. I actually think it's easier than most of those things to train, uh, although not everybody sees that right away, but it's, it's so very predictable uh, that most dogs are able to accomplish that relatively easily. And there's, you know, some, some kind of cue control again. Um, so leaving your dog at a distance and cueing them to sit down, stand, recall, um, retrieving and open and utility. There are different kinds of retrieves that you'll do. Sometimes you're retrieving and bringing it back over a jump. Sometimes you're, um, retrieving a specific object of several, either that the handler indicates by direction. So there's an exercise called the directed retrieve where you have uh, in AKC, three gloves are placed out at a distance from, um, from the team. And then the judge tells you which glove you're going to retrieve, one, two, or three. And then the handler has to indicate which of those gloves to retrieve. And the dog brings back that one and only that one, which I find, again, very useful as a skill in everyday life. Because when I'm trying to point to something that I'd like my dog to bring to me because I don't want to get up off the couch because I just got comfortable, <laughs> being able to indicate a specific, you know, that I want you to bring me my remote. No, I want you to bring me, you know, the pen that I dropped. I think that's very, very practical and very oh, useful. I once had Tug, my Vizsla, um, picked up a piece of trash for me that was like blowing away. I was like, go get it. <laughs> and yeah. got it and brought it back to me. It was very, very lovely. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's. I just want him to get the toy that's too far. I mean, I have uh, one of my cues is I can't reach it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. I have the uh, oops, I dropped that is one of our cues. Um, so love it. Um, yeah. And you know, when we have a scent discrimination exercise where they're retrieving uh, an object that has the, the handler scent on it, and then someone else has scented the other ones. Oh, there's a directed jumping exercise where you have to send your dog 50 feet away from you um, between a couple of jumps and then cue them to sit at 50 feet away and then cue them to go over one or the other of the jumps, which the judge tells you to do. That one doesn't come up that much in real life, but it is has, you know, again, the core skill there is one that's useful in a lot of hunting and agility. Like there's a lot of situations where being able to send your dog away and then have them follow directions, hurting uh, was right. another example. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. Where, um, where those skills could play out. And so I think there's, 
a potential for a lot of cross training in there. Interesting. I have never really equated obedience with sort of the functional equivalence of those behaviors before. I don't think I could send my agility dogs 50 feet away from me without some kind of target to go to, right? Like if there was a jump, I don't even think I could send them to an obstacle 50 feet away at this point. I might have to make it a new goal. <laughs> you know what? I, I, I'm not doing a ton of agility right now, but when I was more into it and I was competing with, um, well, playing is probably a more accurate term, playing at agility trials with, with my dogs that were um, already trained in obedience, it was really handy for things like snooker um, mm-hmm. and, you know, yeah. all of those, yeah, <laughs> being able to go past an obstacle, being able to add some distance gave me a lot of flexibility, which was really important since I have like no actual handling skills um, in terms of agility. And I you cannot uh, possibly get anywhere where I need to be on course to give a, you know, a relevant cue. So, um, I, the, the more of those things I can make up for in training, the, the more possible it was for me to participate. Hey, and, and distance handling is a very valid form of handling. I was so excited. I was watching the 20 inch dogs, um, for the AKC nationals finals. And I loved that there was one distance handler in there also handling a border collie, like gets a similar time, but couldn't move as fast as some of the other handlers. And so I, I love when that kind of that style is showcased alongside sort of the more, more common way of teaching. Like there's lots of ways to, to teach things and there's lots of ways to get towards the end goal. And I feel like too often we're only presented with one picture of like what success looks like or, or how you can do it. So I, that yes. That is a fabulous point because I have, you know, finally accepted that I am never going to be a six foot tall, willowy, like fast moving runner, direction changer. That's not not something that's in my, uh, in my body type. So that's okay. Cause I, what else can I do? I have, I have had to accept that despite the fact that I am fast and quick and can get where I need to be, it would be helpful to focus more on some dog training stuff and like really focus <laughs> like be be a better dog trainer and don't just mm-hmm. rely on your handling. I mean, yes. it's helpful and and nice and I like to have it in my back pocket, but you know, there's there's more to it than that. So it's it's all important. That's that's the thing about being well-rounded is that got to do all of the things <laughs> in class last night. All ate my young dog. She, she just turned 19 months. Oddly enough, last night I thought about fractal Whitney because she had knocked a bar and the instructor said, well, she's rushing when you rush, she rushes. And then she knocked the bar. So yep. you're going to have to not rush, but still be fast, of course. Yep. But there was also a piece on the course where I sent her and I got a little more distance than I thought I was going to. And then I turned you know, to get the blind cross in and race up there. And then she crashed into the jump. And the instructor says, I thought you were going to make it. But as soon as you took off, she went faster. So that's not going to (laughs) work. I know all about that. There's a lot of distance training in our future. Yes. So what kinds of behaviors must a dog be trained for in obedience? So you've talked about the, the skills is, and I guess is this sort of a repetitive question or is there a way in which you would say there, you would split out sort of the behavior from the, the act of what they have to do? Does that make any sense? 
It does. I'm trying to think of a way to answer it that would be useful and can be accomplished in less than seven hours. Um, well, so like, like there's, for, there's... The, for the send away, like how, so how yeah. do you start training something mm. like that? Yeah. So I do teach it as a send to target behavior initially. Um, and I really keep it as a send to target and then just generalize the heck out of it. And it works really, really well. Um, one of the things that I've noticed is that as as, as the distance increases, the presence of the target becomes less relevant, which makes a lot of sense because dogs aren't, um, even, even a bird dog, the vis- vision is still not their primary like sensory input mm-hmm. that they, that they, you know, operate in the world with. So it seems to be very, very important to them to be able to see the target in the first, like maybe six or seven feet. Mm-hmm. But then as you approach like 20 feet and at 50 feet, I don't see them even looking for the target. I think that there's a lot of other cues that they're responding to, but I do teach it as a center target because that gives me a way to teach them to, to move away from the source of reinforcement, which is really the hard part with all, all distance training, because if you have, and, and should have made yourself the source of reinforcement for your dog in a training context, why on earth would they move away from you when you're the source of reinforcement? So there is a skill um, in that kind of a meta skill of you can go over there to do the thing. And that's how you get access to the reinforcement that's over here. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's, and that's a big part of, of, of all dog sports, obedience being no exception that the, we'll call them the primary reinforcers, the food and the toys are always going to be in a different space from where the behaviors are performed. So you have to be you have to have the skill and it is a skill of moving away from that source of reinforcement to do the things that are going to give you access to the reinforcement um, at the end. Right. So that's kind of a big one. Yeah. So how long does it typically take to fully train a dog for obedience? And is it really ever done? So there's a lot of ways to answer this question. Um, Last one first, behavior being dynamic is always changing. So so no, um, particularly as someone who has some perfectionism issues, way <laughs> predating obedience, um, there's always, you know, we can always improve. It's always, it's, I mean, the, there's so much complexity there. So there's so many layers and you can, you can, you can keep going as long, um, as you, as you want to, or feel compelled to. So I don't consider it to be you know really done, but I don't consider behavior to ever be done because it, it, it isn't right. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Um, that's biologically not the point of behavior. So, um, the, the point of behavior in biology being to be adaptable in the short term, mm-hmm. so it does always change based on conditions and, and learning history and all the things. So, um, how long does it typically take, um, to teach the skills themselves? There is a range here because some of the skills are going to come more easily, more quickly for some individuals and in some breeds and others are going to take more work. Um, there are definitely dogs that have been bred purpose bred for these kinds of behaviors. And I've worked with them and they make you feel like a really good dog trainer because it's not that hard. Um, and then there's other dogs where you're really earning it. (laughs) Um, I I would say in the middle, um, the, the majority of dogs you are going to get, you know, some proportion of the skills are going to come really relatively easily. So, uh, and then others you'll work for, and then it's, the universe just likes balance. So the next dog that you get, it's going to be reversed, you know? So I have a dog that came with a you know, really natural tucked sit. I did almost nothing to cultivate that just, you know, a little bit of refinement and stimulus control no, job done. And so the next dog that I got, you may as well have asked her to, to fly or climb a tree. And I had to build the tuck sit <laughs> from scratch. Um, 
in general, most of the, the skills themselves in isolation don't take that long to train once you've found the right combination of like break the breakdown that is what's needed for, for this individual dog. Um, you know, the, the dog that I had to teach the tech sit from scratch that took, that was like a year long project, but it was, you know, probably 10 months of trial and error, trying out methods and techniques that weren't working. And then once I got the one that was working, it was six weeks, you know, um, to get, to get the thing put together and not six weeks of, of getting up and training for eight hours a day. It was six weeks of, you know, four or five minute sessions a week. But once you got the formula, then it's like, oh, bam, 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 bam. Most of my dogs have the skills in isolation, probably between two and three years old. Um, but most of my dogs are really ready to compete closer to four. And that has more to do with physical and social maturity and all of the other stuff that it is about being a dog in the world and less about the sport itself. So I have taken an 18 month old dog in the ring and I don't know if successful is the right word, um, but completed the tasks (laughs) and then, and then waited two years and went back in the second time and did much, much better with a dog that just had more brain cells ready, you know, to, to handle those sorts of things. So, um, it, it, the, again, there's some dogs that are going to come and just take less work. So if you have like your stereotypical golden, they, you know, they, the social stuff comes more easily. Environmental stuff comes more easily. You're not doing a ton of work there. Um, a lot of them come from lines that have been bred for new aspects of these behaviors that are, can, can be considered heritable, um, which makes those easier. So those are, are often not always, um, can be truly ready earlier than say a Belgian who may acquire the physical skills, you know, in 15 minutes, but then you're going to spend four years getting them comfortable around unfamiliar dogs and unfamiliar people. Mm. So, but that's also, I mean, again, that's part of all sports to some extent. Right. And that's, I mean, I think that's the hard part. I think teaching the exercises is, is so much easier than teaching how to be at a dog show. A hundred percent. I wish, and it really does depend on the dog. And to some extent, a lot of times the breed, but like mm-hmm. my Visla never got comfortable at dog trials ever. He never liked the environment. And when I started with him, I had no idea that was a thing because he was the first dog I trained to do anything, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, versus my border collie went to a show in the loudest venue around here at, you know, 12 weeks old or whatever. And she's like, whatever, I don't care. She just, she's all about it. So definitely differences in, um, in the environment. But if you have a dog who's really sensitive to it, it, it takes some work. Where do obedience trials typically take, take place? Are there a lot of people outside the ring? What kind of, what does that look like? It varies widely and, and depends on what part of the country you're in. Um, where I'm at in the Southeast, we're usually indoors. Um, we are usually in, the kind of typical dog training facility, which is a metal building with no internet access and terrible acoustics. Um, <laughs> yes, that is an accurate description. Yeah. And it's usually near a railroad track because it's industrial. So, uh-huh. um, yep. So that's, that's the most common. We do have, the obedience trials are often held in conjunction with confirmation shows as well. So you'll have really huge ones that are held at, you know, an expo or uh, mm-hmm. fairgrounds, you know, something like that, where you might be in a livestock. I've, 
I've been to a trial that was at that was held in conjunction with the uh, at the Kentucky Horse Park in Kentucky. That one, those are those are big. Other parts of the country have more outdoor shows, hmm. depending kind of on the weather. So, like Northern California, I believe are frequently you know way more outdoors. Around here, there's probably there's one that I know of that, that I, I mean, pre-pandemic and the before times was still having a, an outdoor trial, but mostly indoors. And again, it has just has a lot to do with the weather. Right. Um, let's see, you're asking, are there people? They tend to be tighter spaces than what you would get at an agility trial. Mm. Again, partly because you're working in a 40 by 50 ring instead of in a mm-hmm. 100 by 75. And so you're always closer to anyone who is outside the ring than than you would right. be otherwise their space is often a premium in the before times we would often have you know all of the creating would be ringside so you mm-hmm. would have you know a lot of pressure around the rings and then we had well then we had a year of not really having trials and then we had a year of people trying to figure it out and so there was everybody creating in their car and only coming in one at a time and i don't actually know where we're going to land with that so that that one is is changing and do a lot have, of people prefer that that like less people in the arena when you're competing you know opinions vary. I think if you do badly, you're going to blame it on the conditions, whichever mm-hmm. one it is. Right. So um, it's either that there were too many people or that there weren't enough. Uh, and I have seen it objectively go both ways. So I have definitely seen dogs getting more put off by the the high contrast of going from like a, the more crowded outside the ring to stepping into the clearing in the woods and like all the predator's eyes are looking down at you. Like there's, there's, it's much more obvious when you're stepping from a whole bunch of dogs and created dogs like onto stage and the spotlight is on you. And I, I think we've all experienced that feeling of, oh, everyone's looking at me all of a sudden. And, um, but then I've also had dogs be weirded out when there wasn't enough kind of background noise, I guess would be the way to describe mm-hmm. it, where then every individual stimulus, again, the contrast is probably the, the primary feature here, the any, any small sound, the, you know, the air conditioning right. cutting on, right. um, somebody dropping a pen all sound really loud, like in a library and mm-hmm. that can be weird too. So mm, I don't think I have an answer for that. That's interesting. Cause there are certainly some agility changes that people are really excited to see continue and some that folks are ready to see go away. So I, I think it'll be very interesting for a lot of dog sports like what what were some of those innovations born of necessity that everybody is, goes why didn't we think of that before so it uh-huh. it'll be very yeah. interesting moving forward yeah so what age should a dog be when they start obedience work or do you start kind of as soon as they arrive as a puppy you know i start right from you know i mean really again this is where i can kind of go down a rabbit hole um i'm starting from the very beginning effectively but what I'm doing initially might not look like obedience specific work to you because the the initial behaviors that I'm teaching, you know, you know, the first week or two is really just about establishing reinforcers and you know establishing the beginnings of a training relationship and um, get getting them used to being in the house with you and what your life is going to be like. And that doesn't change if I'm going to do obedience or not. And yet having those skills on board has everything to do with being successful in obedience. Right. Um, teaching good. I don't love the term body awareness because it's more than that control coordination, you know, being able to, to stand and balance yourself and shift your weight and have, um, 
a really broad repertoire of how to move your body in space, as well as a knowledge of where your body is, is in space. Uh, those are all things that I consider to be critical for you know, really high level obedience performance, but I also consider them to be really important for life on the planet. I'm doing it from the very beginning in ways that are very puppy appropriate, but it probably won't look to the outside like obedience necessarily until like we're probably, you know, six, eight months old. But in my mind, it's all a continuous stream. Yep. So that's very similar to agility where that yeah. body awareness and <laughs> awareness of where your feet are and where your butt is and all that stuff you can mm -hmm. work on as they're little um, and, and life skills really. And it's not till they're more like eight months that you're going to get closer to looking like agility behaviors. And building engagement sure. with you as the trainer and the reinforcers, like you said, because that's that's the biggest step forward so that you don't like do nothing and you get to six months and it's like, hey, we should build a relationship now. <laughs> I feel very, yes, very strongly. I will have occasionally had convert discussions, intellectual debates um, about, I don't think this is common anymore, but it used to be you know a fairly common practice to like let the puppy grow up and mm -hmm. have them be feral. And then at an arbitrary age, six months, um, 12 months, whatever, now you bring them in for training. And I, th I think that's dumb. Like I <laughs> there's, there's no advantage to that. There's no uh, advantage. I, no, it, no, it made sense when, when our training was less sophisticated, when it was more kind of blunt force um, training, we were depending more on um, physical stuff um, to get the behaviors to happen. But if you're coming at training from a more progressive lens, we know so much more about how behavior works. Right. We have so much more, um, so many more resources, so much more just everything. And, you know, our primary job as trainers, regardless of, of sport is, um, is, is cultivating effective reinforcement that we can use to accomplish whatever, whatever we want. And so that's really what I'm spending the majority of the time with my puppy. I was going to say in those first months, but actually no forever, right. I'm always cultivating those reinforcers. It's not something that like stage one, um, drive building stage two, skill building stage three performance. Like that's, um, mm -hmm. you know, proving and polishing stage, stage four world domination. It's a, it's a continuous and ongoing. I love the spiral staircase um, visual for that because you're always, you're always adding layers. You're circling back through the same concepts, but laying, putting you know, laying it on top of the existing learning history and then learning more and refining more and then learning more. Um, and, and that necessarily begins at the beginning. And since puppies are made to learn. I mean, all, all organ life, life, living organisms on earth are made to learn because we have to, in order to function in the world, we have to be able to adapt behavior to our environment. So we may as well harness that and use it so that they're learning the things that are to our advantage. Yeah. That's the biggest piece that I wish sort of pet people could know is that you really need to build a relationship with your dog and build those reinforcer skills. And when I was teaching for the local club to do um, for agility classes, you know, these folks would show up and they don't even know how to give their dogs a treat. Not really. And, and they don't know how to have them work with them because that's not a skill they've ever practiced. And then these poor people expect that their dogs can be able to go out there and do all these complex behaviors on the equipment. 
And it's just about so much more than the equipment. In a lot of ways, the equipment is the easy part part. of the sport. Absolutely. I mean, reinforcement drives behavior. So your your training is only ever going to be as effective as your reinforcement skills are. And they are skills. Mm -hmm. I think it's, there are mechanics on both sides. There's the how to like physically manipulate the treats and it, it doesn't come for free. It's something that has Mm -hmm. to be practiced. Um, People will often say, oh, you're so lucky. You're so good at that girl, let's practice. Like I've been working Mm -hmm. on this for, for 15 years now. Holy crap. That's hard to say, but, um, but also it goes with the puppies as well. Most puppies don't take food from your hand effectively. Initially, Mm -hmm. they have to learn it. Um, I don't think anyone or very few people have explicitly talked about that, but it's a very common thing when I am working with a new puppy mine or, you know, working with a, a client's that the first things we're doing is like, Hey, the food comes from my hand like this. And they're at first they're like, Oh, I can smell that there's food. And they're like mouthing all over, but they can't figure it out. And then finally they get it. And if I want my puppy to be able to take food from my hand while I'm holding it over his head, while I'm moving it away from him, if I'm holding it underhanded, um, I use a treat delivery strategy where I deliver food from the pinky side of my hand. And that's a mechanical skill for me that I had to practice to get good at. And it's a skill for the dog to know how to find the food, how to access it. Um, And ideally we figure that out as a team in a way that he gets the food efficiently without feeling frustrated, without dropping it. And I'm able to deliver it in a way that facilitates the behavior I'm trying to train and without losing any blood. So those are, those are like, you really have to be specific. How do you want to use the food? And can you teach your dog through like shaping to do it the way that's going to work well, that's going to be practical for the behaviors you're trying to train. We put a lot of emphasis on like, oh, well, it's the treat. And then if, if the reinforcement isn't working air quotes, um, we change treats and it's sometimes that's, sometimes that's a a good solution, but a lot of the times it's not the first thing that I go to. I'm looking at what is it about how I'm delivering this treat that's making Mm. it harder to access for my dog. Mm. I had not thought previously that hard about how I'm handing my treats to my dogs. Usually it's more about, should I flatten my hands so they don't bite my fingers off? (laughs) (laughs) That is a part of it. Yes. Yes. And and what's also fascinating is as that gets more predictable. So I was raised um, in my dog training um, childhood, which was primarily my twenties, but um, I am, I am still a child in my mind by um, a lot of like kennel kept working line, German shepherds and Malinois. And mm. so I learned very quickly to, to feed them flat. Like you're feeding a wild horse yep. <laughs> and protect yep. your fingers. But also one of the things that I've noticed working with those dogs, and then, you know, in subsequent years is that if you put some attention into the predictability of how you're delivering and how they're receiving the reinforcement, the biting gets better, even if you do nothing else. And that is really cool. That's really fascinating to me. It might be one of the best takeaways from this episode. How to not have your fingers bitten off, by the mm-hmm. way, make your, make your delivery. If, you, if you're getting, if you're getting bitten, it's something to look at. Like I consider that diagnostic at this point. Yeah. Uh, and it's a good place. Someone will say, oh, I can't you know, deliver food in healing. Cause my dog bites my hands. We, we need to pull that apart because that's information and that's right. totally <laughs> fixable. And it's not fixable by teaching them to not bite your hands. It's fixable by how do we need to adjust this reinforcement strategy and our criteria and our timing so that it's more predictable so that your dog is not running into that condition, which is usually there's a frustration element there or, or a desperation. Like there's a lot of things that can be happening there and working through the reinforcement procedure from both sides usually goes a long way to addressing it. 
That makes a lot of sense. So then if somebody has never done obedience but would like to try it, they're they're up for a journey, uh, how would you advise them to get started? Well, they could buy my book. Um, <laughs> if they're if they're into that, uh, Awesome Obedience by Hannah Brannigan. That does have a lot of a lot of information in this breakdown, as well as context. I've tried really hard to put a lot of context in the in the book. And I also have a, an online program, Zero to CD, that's exactly for that. It's for people who are interested in getting started in obedience from scratch with new experience. Um, but there's also, I think there's, it's harder to find classes in obedience, competitive obedience, you know, for drawing the Venn diagram of you know, dog training classes and competitive obedience. And then if you have a particular style or philosophy um, in mind, it starts to get to be a smaller and smaller mm smaller, smaller subsection there. So, cause this is something we talk about quite a bit on the mm-hmm. podcast is, so then are even it, classes are harder to find. And even if you do find a class, you might not want to take it because you need to look at the approach that the instructor is going to use. And it makes sure that you are comfortable with that approach. Is that what you're, that like, there's, are there old school obedience people and new school obedience people? Cause didn't, Obedience used to use a lot of tools and prong collars and, or am I imagining that? No, it still does. And I think the word obedience itself can be a little bit, a lot loaded uh, in terms of, of what we associate with it. And, you know, it it comes with it, the baggage of commands and, you know, I actually, I tried when I'm on Instagram, I'm using the hashtag obedience. And so I, I follow and I look at it and I was kind of horrified when I first started following it because most of it's not about dogs. And a lot of it is not something I would normally have on my Instagram feed at all. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, but where was I going with that? That was a side tangent. Okay. Um, yeah, it it is. It has historically been really very coercive. More modern positive reinforcement based techniques are still very much not mainstream. We're very much Got the it. exception um, yeah. in that sport. So it is pretty hard to. You know, for an individual person, some you know, some folks get lucky. We certainly have you know clusters like sure is yes you know talent little talent clusters tend to develop. So there are definitely places uh, in the country where you can find instructors. I think um, you know a lot of competition obedience, and they're I'm trying to to talk about this without being a jerk. Um, a lot of the competition obedience classes are held in dog training clubs and taught by volunteers, and so uh-huh. that doesn't. We all, I mean, we all teach the way that we were, that we, that we were, that we were taught, right? Right. Like, you know, by default. And then if you're a volunteer on a very part-time basis, it's, you don't necessarily have the time and the resources and the experience to go out and seek, you know, new different stuff, which is not to say that there are people who don't, because there are absolutely people who are. And there have been obedience clubs and dog training clubs that have brought me in to teach a seminar for that exact purpose. And I've consulted with um, clubs on curriculum design to see because they wanted to improve their program so that that's true, but it's also again, not mainstream. So, you know, those are things that I right. have right. folks check on. Uh, I mean, just like with any instructor, you, you're looking for someone who's a good fit for you. I think, and I mean, cause we'd sort of harp on that. Like, don't take the first thing that comes along. Think about what you need, the way that you want to mm-hmm. approach things. We'd mostly try to so far stay out of conversations about what is the right way to train a dog you have to make your decision for you we certainly come from a positive reinforcement based culture and it's been really interesting that agility more started there that it was 
I mean, I know in the dark ages, as they call it, dogs were on leash and they're sort of like dragging them over the jump before they really mm-hmm. had much of any idea about how to train behaviors and the following the hand through the, the weave poles, but, <laughs> yes. yeah, right? which you still yes. see in trials today. That's not like that's, Absolutely. that's gone yes. away. Mm-hmm. But at the time, like that was the only way they were training it. Yes. And talk about things have gotten a lot more sophisticated. So I I feel like we're really lucky that for the most part, the sport grew up in a mostly positive reinforcement based way because there are other sports. And, you know, well, we talked to Shade Weitzel about this, too, that mm-hmm. that wasn't where it originated. And so there's this kind of perpetuating issue. And she said that for her, the thing that's really hard is that the people who are still using some of those corrective tools are the people that are winning. And so there's, it feels like there's no incentive. And is that something that you see in obedience? People who are sort of, right. Times a thousand. Yes. Which which is, so it's, it's very, it's, can be very hard to make sure that you are finding a, a trainer that fits your training philosophy and to ask those questions. Cause some, some trainers don't like to be asked questions like that. It is, it is true. And um, I mean, all of those things. And then also just like, there are personal fit, like there, I am yes. not for everyone. Like, right. <laughs> they're not, mm-hmm. there are some people that will find working with me really frustrating. And, uh, and I've, you know, worked really hard to learn to accept that. Cause you know, I need everyone to like me, but um <laughs> but they're not going to, and that's okay. And I don't work well with every other person. So that's right. also okay. And, um, but, but yeah, it's, it's, it is, it is very true that, I mean, it becomes a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. Now I don't accept the premise that compulsion is necessary or sufficient for a reliable performance. Right. I just, I don't see that play out in any other area of behavior in the, in the world. No. Like if we go outside of formal dog training, right. so why would it be different in, like, oh, well, okay. So it's different everywhere except for this breed or this sport. Probably not. We may not know, you know, we may not have a lot of technology developed around solving these old problems in new ways yet, Mm -hmm. but I do think it's a yet, but it does, it, it, there is a cultural problem where, or obstacle, I guess, where if those who are competing and winning at high levels are training a certain way, then that's who people are going to go to, to learn how to train and they're going to teach what they've done. And so then there's this thing, well, you know, nobody who's training this way is, is winning, or is it that nobody who's winning is training this way? And Mm it, you know, so it, it's tough if I want to do something that no one else has done before, I don't have anyone to learn from. And so, Uh um, you know, on a good day, you're, you're working in a little bit of a vacuum and a bad day, people are actively sabotaging you. Right. So right. Um, it's, it's challenging to change, uh, to change culture Yeah, in, in so many ways. Yeah. Um, so it's definitely something that I, I, I do see movement in all of the sports. I think I see movement in us as a society, I hope. Mm-hmm. In the, well, I don't know. It's a little scary right now, but um, we have, there, there are glimmers that, <laughs> that we, that we might, we might make some progress before we burn the planet down, but I think it's, we're figuring it out. I don't know. I got, I lost my, my thread there. What was the original question? <laughs> I don't, I don't remember. We, we okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you answered it. I yeah. think okay, answered good. It. Good. Um, all right. Last, last couple of questions. Cause I know we need to get wrapping up, but I, uh, even though this is super fascinating and there's part of me that wants to like have you back and talk about like, 
life skills and how those apply to sports and stuff. But anyway, that's a different rabbit hole. So give us kind of the biggest mistake that's most common that people make when they're starting their obedience journey. I think the biggest mistake is not putting, I don't want to say time because it's not really a time constraint. It's um, attention to cultivating those reinforcement strategies. Um, so like, it's a really, a really common thing pattern that I w- would have show up when I, w- I was teaching a lot of private lessons is I would have someone come to do a lesson. They've got a trial this weekend. So they just wanted to come and have one lesson with me, you know, the week before the trial to polish up some things. And when they come, the dog is not focused. They're not really engaging with the reinforcers. The reinforcement is vague. The criteria is vague and they're sort of moving through the motions and you can see the beginnings of some behaviors developing. And, but because reinforcement isn't there, um, we don't have, I don't like the word foundation again, because that makes it seem like a one and done kind of thing, but the framework's not there. And so what they'll say is, oh, you know, I just want to work on polishing right now. And then after we finish the title, we'll come back and work on focus and drive building. And that's (laughs) so the opposite. Oh my. it's, It's so common. I mean, I think it's similar to what you're talking about. Like, oh, I, I want to get on the equipment, which I know we all talk about and complain about. And it results in a lot of frustration for both sides of the leash. Yeah. Um, I think that it is very hard um, sometimes to trust the process, that it's worth it to be really specific, to really put the, again, I don't want to say time because it doesn't take that much time. It just takes attention um, and, and, and purposefulness, deliberate practice, I guess, is uh, something we might apply here to, Mm -hmm. to cultivate the reinforcers that are effective, which means also generalizing them into the environments where you want to use them for training. It's not just like, does he take food? Yep. Great. Let's train. No, it's like, how are we taking the food? Do I have reinforcement strategies that are giving me the category of behaviors and responses that are what I want to see in my training session. So if I throw food, does he chase it directly after it, grab it, whip back around and come right back to me? Or is he trotting over, sniffing around, finding it, and then glancing out, scanning the environment as he more or less makes his way back towards me 30 seconds later? That's not the same thing. And I really need the the former there if I want to be functional in training. Mm -hmm. And that's totally worth putting your training attention into that. And if you do, then the skills work that you do goes much faster. It's much a much better, uh-huh. cleaner road with less crap to fix halfway through. And you'll spend less money because you'll qualify more and get better scores. Well, and, and you, but you spend less time overall because you're not wasting less time 30, yes. 30 seconds every single time you toss the treat or the toy trying to cajole the bat dog back to you. So that's the other yes. thing is that it feels like you're not moving forward sometimes, but you're saving yourself so much time when you do get all of those, that framework solid. Absolutely. That's an excellent note to end on. <laughs> Man, I hope there's light bulbs going off for people right now. I hope. So mm-hmm. Hannah, we're so appreciative of your time. If people want to know more about their training, how can they find you? So I am on um, definitely on Facebook and Instagram. You can definitely find me on uh, through my website, hannahbranigan.dog. And then in the, my podcast, Drinking from the Toilet, is available from whatever your favorite podcast store is we will include links to that in the show notes thank you thank you for joining us this was a 
wonderful discussion. Thanks for having me. So that's all for today's episode. Don't forget to rate, share, and subscribe to our podcast so you can join us for our next episode. In the meantime, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, or by visiting our website at www.caninehijinks.com. Thanks for joining us. Make sure to go out and have some fun with your dogs. Talk to you next time. Bye.